Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Oh, you printed out the white paper? I did. Nice. I did. It's a pretty good white paper. And then also Dylan left his, his tax returns in there. Oh, God. Did <laughs> I really? <laughs> Financial transparency. Did I really? Yes. I didn't read your tax returns. Do you want to get no, them? No, wait. But do you want to get them? Yeah. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Sarah Cliff and joined by special guest star Dylan Scott. And that's because we are going to you talk about... You know what it about... means when Dylan's here? It's healthcare. It means healthcare. healthcare. <laughs> but don't worry, we are going to talk about some Nordic administrative data later. Yeah, we Data are. they just spilled out on the internet for everyone to see. Uh, but first, Sarah... What's up with healthcare? There is a new Medicare for All plan in town. So last week, um, Pramila Jayapal, she is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a House member from Seattle. She rolled out this kind of much-anticipated House bill to expand Medicare to everybody. So this comes after Sanders's bill. Last year, this is a updated version of a bill that Jayapal took over from some other folks who have since left the House, the most recent owner of this bill, with Keith Ellison, who is now serving as Minnesota Attorney General. He leaves the House, leaves it in Jayapal's hands. And what she rolls out, it's something she's been working on for months, is, in my view, probably the most generous version I've seen of Medicare for All. And I would have said that was true of the Sanders plans when it was rolled out. If you look at the Sanders plan, there's no co-payments, there's no deductibles. The benefits covered include, obviously, doctor visits, hospital visits, but also vision, dental, prescription drugs, um, reproductive health, a whole wide array of benefits. Basically, anything you could think of as healthcare seem to be in there, which is much more generous than the Canadian system, than European systems, who usually have some kind of limit on benefits or some kind of cost sharing. Um, the Jayapal bill comes out last week, and it goes even further. It includes a benefit to cover long-term care, which we did not see in the Sanders plan, which is a pretty challenging area, an expensive area of health care that's being used by more and more Americans with an aging population. It also envisions, and I, this is something maybe we could talk about a little bit more, 
a much faster transition to Medicare for all. So whereas the Sanders plan had this four-year ramp up to moving everyone to a government plan, the Jayapal plan is a two-year transition, which to me seemed very optimistic given, you know, after watching the rollout of healthcare.gov over four years and that didn't go so well. But, uh, you know, Representative Jayapal, we talked a little bit about this. And I can say if you're interested in this conversation before listening to this podcast, you might want to listen to an interview I did with Representative Jayapal on the Ezra Klein show, where I was guest hosting for him, where he talks, where she talks a lot about these issues. And we had a pretty robust discussion about this transition period, about the benefits covered. And then I guess just to zoom out a little bit, I think one of the things that's just striking to me about this plan rolling out is how aggressively Democrats continue to go at the health care issue. That now, you know, in the Senate for a while, there has been this Sanders bill that if you are, you know, a Democratic senator, you're getting some pressure to sign on to if you're a presidential candidate, especially. Now you essentially have that equivalent in the House and you have more chance for things to happen in the House with Democrats in control. One of the things Jayapal did pretty early on in this session is secured a commitment from Speaker Pelosi to have hearings on Medicare for all, which I think will be sometime in the fall or so. But Dylan, you might know a little bit better. So they really want to be talking about this, to be debating this. They seem to be bringing a little more of their caucus on board. I thought it was pretty notable that um, Joe Kennedy from Massachusetts, who was the one member of the Progressive Caucus who had not backed Medicare for All, he came on board with this bill with the addition of the long-term care. So it is something Democrats really want to talk about, but I think they're going to have to get a bit more realistic about the structure of their plan if they really wanted to dig into the details of what is actually going to work. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Democrats have not, if like they haven't backed down at all from the idea of kind of setting this North Star goal, which um, of like a basically a healthcare system that covers everybody with no out-of-pocket costs. I did think it was interesting. Like this was a pretty dramatic rewrite of the bill and the fact that they were still able, they got 106 co-sponsors for it, which is basically half, a little less than half of the new House Democratic Caucus. And they got some, they got even got members from some of the, some newly elected members from competitive House districts like uh, Katie Porter in um, Orange County, Katie Hill also out in California. I I, I was surprised to see Jared Golden, who's uh, a new representative from Maine, signed on to the bill. And so I think there was sort of a a question of how much this, you know, all the big names on there like AOC, Rashida uh, Tlaib were on there as well. But I I thought it was notable that they managed to get some of the new members from uh, competitive districts on board as well. And so, yeah, I think that is a signal of how the Democrats have have decided that this is, yeah, a place where they want to go all in. Um, And they're finally like, I thought the addition of the long-term care provision was the most notable thing about this plan. Because you've done some reporting in this space. So what have you learned about why it was added, what it covers? Like, what's the story behind that? Let me me be the Vox voice here. What is long-term care? So long-term care is like, I mean, that's your nursing homes. That's, you know, people who get uh, have home health aids. Basically, you know, for the elderly and disabled, people who need just like help with their day-to-day activities because of certain impairments that they have. That is what falls under the long-term services and support. And this is something there was a move, right? I mean, I I think driven by Ted Kennedy. Yeah, to include Right. To include a long-term care element in Obamacare. But it was too expensive. And well, they, no, so it was too, it, it was included. And then the, so they included this program where you could buy long-term care insurance at an affordable premium. And then they also included this like little line that said, 
if the actuaries at HHS determine that this is not feasible, you can kill the program. And it turns out, you know, the only people who buy long-term care insurance are the people who really have an acute need for long-term care. So the program was quickly determined to be unsustainable under the Obama administration, not the Trump administration. Um, former HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius killed off that long-term care part of Obamacare. And so I think it was like an instructive tale of how, so they wanted to do a cheaper version of long-term care, where they just said, if you want to buy insurance for it, you can. Unfortunately, because it is just like a classic insurance market, it doesn't really work as a benefit where you decide to opt in or not. It was sure. like having Obamacare without the individual mandate, only the people who needed the benefit. So that was the last Democrats attempt at long-term care, and it just did not go well. And it was a really big carve-out of the old versions of Medicare for All, I think, mm-hmm. because this is such a vulnerable population. And if, like, the goal of this entire project is providing health care, especially to the people who need it the most, I always thought that leaving out long-term care was, yeah, a really big gap um, in what the Medicare for All proponents said they wanted to achieve and what their plan would actually do. And so now they've they've incorporated that into the Jayapal plan. They did say, um, I asked them about this on the press call last week, and they did say that they don't know how much it's going to cost yet. Um, and I think that was the reason I know from talking to Sanders' staff that that was the reason it was left out before is it was just too expensive. Well, I and also, I th- one thing I think it's important to point out is that one thing that always surprises me about American health care is that long-term care actually isn't covered by Medicare currently. It's right. kind of a bizarre system. I think we often think of the elderly having Medicare, the elderly are in nursing homes. They probably get Medicare coverage there. Um, it's actually Medicaid that does most of the long-term care coverage, but it leads to a kind of bizarre situation where in order to qualify for long-term care, you often have to spend down all of your assets. So you, you know, are selling off your house, you're like putting things in other people's names. It just becomes a very challenging situation for people who need a long-term care resource. So this isn't even part of Medicare right now. And I think a lot of that has to do with the costs being quite, quite expensive and getting more expensive as we have an aging population. Right now, this lives in Medicaid with some kind of stringent rules around who does or doesn't have access to it. But I also think there's a there's a political question here, right, which is that for a long time, there was not a sharp age gradient in American politics. And defending Social Security and Medicare was a critical part of Democrats' pitch to senior citizens, right? And then starting in the mid-Bush years, when uh, Bush kind of stole the Medicare prescription drug issue from Democrats and put that into place and then amped up a certain style of culture war politics and following through very much into the Trump years, right, voting behavior has become starkly divided along age lines, right? And a big pitch that Republicans now make against Medicare for all type plans but also against the Affordable Care Act is that Democrats are threatening senior citizens privileged access to publicly provided health care by offering publicly provided health care to other people, Mm -hmm. right? And there's like two ways that I think you can conceptualize the healthcare fight playing out along those lines. One, which I think is the Sanders vision, is like you got to beat these people. Right. Like Bernie's constituency is very, very young. And this is in some sense like a question of fairness and equity. Like, no, we are going to have Medicare for all. We are not going to let you say, like, I've got mine. Fuck you is the position of the United States on health care. Whereas the Jayapal vision is like goes the other way is like we are going to include a gigantic benefit for the elderly and near elderly 
in this program, right? And if you think that will work, right, if you think that that will make 50-something people be like, oh, yeah, there's something valuable in this for me too, then like that makes a lot of sense. But if you think it just like further adds to the already vast and nebulous fiscal cost of this thing that elderly people hate, then it's like, like what, like why? What have you accomplished? Yeah. I don't know. I'm curious because like I do think a lot of people have a very direct experience with this part in part to Sarah's point because so many people are getting older and it's not just them. It's not like the elderly are the ones who are figuring out like how to divest their finances so that they can qualify for Medicaid. Like their kids who are now like 40 and 50 year olds are also like having to are very um, or have, have had to go through this experience with them and are therefore very cognizant I think of the shortcomings of the current system. I don't know how that that, that political question plays out. But it did seem to me that like the only way to really accomplish the goals of Medicare for All, I think, were to incorporate long-term care into it. And like the Jayapal folks said, that they have an estimate, I think, that there are like 500,000 people right now who are on a waiting list to get on to Medicaid so that their long-term care would be covered. And right. so that is like a baseline of, of the potential constituency for a Yeah, I mean, part of this, I think, like this. is a benefit for the elderly. But I also think like I have seen, especially with the ACA repeal fight, a more active and um, influential lobbying effort from the disability community, particularly around Medicaid repeal in 2017. You know, there's a group I covered a decent amount called the Little Lobbyists that worked with a lot of young children who rely on long-term care, so kids who need around-the-clock aid, who need an aid to go with them to school. I saw those communities, you know, who had been doing work before this, no doubt, they became very activated around the Obamacare repeal push and were a constant presence up on Capitol Hill. And I think that's part of what's going on here, too. I mean, I, I agree part of this is about swaying an older constituency, but it's also a health justice thing. Like, we're also dealing with people who have disabilities, who need some kind of support, who are not elderly, but just to do their job or to go to school, be a student. Um, this becomes a really tricky area that usually, you know, the kids I was covering, all these benefits were covered through Medicaid, but a lot of them, you know, spent a lot of time on waiting lists to get those benefits, which is obviously a huge drag on their parents' productivity, on the entire family. So I think that's a, like a health justice element of it that's going on as well when you look at the Jayapal bill. When I look at the Jayapal bill, it just feels like, fuck it, let's do everything. Like, let sure. us cover every single benefit. Let's get there as quick as possible. Um, you know, I was pretty interested in this idea to transition in two years, which just seemed, you know, in my view, pretty unrealistic of a vision in Representative Jayapal's view she felt like it was necessary because once you kind of announce an insurance market is going to be closing, you know, either they'll jack up prices, they'll leave like the it would be very tumultuous to have a long transition. I am less optimistic that you can move that quickly to that sort of system, um, just given what I've seen from the government. Um, but it really seems like a vision of like, let's start negotiating at like the optimal system and negotiate down like I. I, I haven't heard from anyone being like, oh, you forgot to cover that thing with the Jayapal bill. Like, it's all there. I mean, this is a little bit like asking, you know, if Superman could yeah. beat up the Hulk, right? <laughs> like, that, you know, for various reasons, there's been a stylistic shift in how thought-leading Democrats think about policy proposals away from trying to craft ideas that are in the neighborhood of something that if they think they get a beneficial election result and convince a couple people 
like could be enacted or pitching ideas that they believe could be the basis of a bipartisan compromise to kind of doing um, like acting more like those of us in the hot takes game. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then like once you get into that space, it's like, yeah, like like, yeah, why why have a four year implementation schedule? Like, why not two? Like, why carve out long term care? Like, put put everything put in everything because because you're just talking about. I mean, it, it tells you something that almost half of the House Democratic Caucus has signed on to this. But it also tells you something that, like, nowhere near half the U.S. House members have signed on to this. And while Democrats could gain House seats, those would be, like, even redder House seats than the ones that they already have. And so whatever it is that Jayapal is doing here, yeah. it's, like, not it's like not the road to 218 votes, right? She's, like— laying out her view right. of how things should be. And I think the thing we don't know is like what the actual like single payer constituency is inside the Democratic Party, especially thinking about like the voters as opposed to like I think Democratic voters just embrace the ideas of, of universal health care and expanding health coverage to more people. But I don't get the sense that there's necessarily a huge uh, coalition that is hell-bent on, abs- you know, on a single-payer system and getting to it immediately. And so, yeah, my question is sort of like, especially looking at, looking at it through the uh, Democratic primary lens, like how many people are as committed to this as Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal is, I guess? Well, my question is, um, is how do you pay for it? I have Ooh. a longer question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's 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 take a break um, and and sort of dive into that because this is like, if you look at where single payer advocates were three months ago, it seemed like the hard question was to like work on financing, and Jayapal chose to work on a different question, which was like, how do you make that hard question even harder? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Yeah, so the one thing I would say is missing from the Jayapal bill, and, you know, I think she would probably quibble with my use of the word missing, but is a financing plan. And this was, you know, when I was on, Dylan and I were on this press call with her office. This was one of the first questions she got from reporters was, how do you pay for it? And she responded by saying, you know, most legislation comes out without a pay for. We figure that out in the future, you know, kind of a bit of a non sequitur of saying, well, Republicans don't get asked how they're going to pay for their tax cuts, which was, you know, not really relevant to the conversation that we were having then. Um, it was a really unsatisfying answer. It was a very un- – so we were both on this call. It was a very unsatisfying answer that was like half, we'll do it later, half, that's not an important question, when I think like we – and I'm gesturing at Dylan here in the podcast studio – we would think it's like one of the – most important questions. You know, one of the people who really influenced my views on this, there's a guy at Harvard named William Shaw, who um, apparently is like the guy, the health economist you call if you're a country trying to build a single-payer system. He worked on Taiwan's system, which launched a few decades ago. He worked with Vermont when they were trying to do single-payer. And when I interviewed him a few years, he told me, you know, about half of countries that try and do single-payer that he's worked with fail. And the place they always fail is at the financing. And so I really see this as a very crucial step in developing legislation and one that Democrats are just not super enthusiastic about engaging with in, in a way that is pretty frustrating to me. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's unfair to ask them how you're going to pay for it because it is a massive part of figuring out um, whether this is going to be doable or not. Um, and you were having some conversations well, about Well, and this, I think right? what's most, before I turn to that, I think what's most maddening about it is the token things that they will throw out, like taxing the wealthy or repealing the Republican tax bill, like don't generate nearly enough money to pay for a system yeah, like this. This is what I was going to say, that like, I don't think it is that important to know that there's a certain style of politics where you're like finding the offsets exactly like A to A, B to B, this pays for that. And like that's not how the government works. And in some respects, it's like not that important to work out in detail. But what I see all the time is progressives who are misstating by several orders of magnitude. (laughs) Like, what is the scale of money that would be involved? So, like, I saw there was a a Bernie Sanders tweet. I think he was tweeting a line from his speech. And he was like, we are going to spend money on investing in healthcare and education, not on endless wars. And like I agree that healthcare and education are more important things to spend on than endless wars. But the high-end estimate that I've seen of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which have taken a long time but very expensive, is $6 trillion. Mm. The cost of Medicare for all over that same time period is over six times that. Mm. And then I see like micro versions of that, right? Like people looking at the to them bloated costs of a single aircraft carrier or something like that. But like what you're talking about doing is much more expensive than that. It is much more expensive than the Trump tax cut. It's it's much more expensive than the entire American military budget. Mm. And it's 
it's true that like the funds exist largely because people are already spending on it, but like you actually need to devise a strategy to like get a large share of the private sector healthcare spending and like redirect it into the public sector and how you actually do that like makes a big it, it makes a really big difference to the question, which is important, of like, are you, depending on who you are, going to be better off under this scheme yeah. or are you not going to be? Because like the promise is that by giving you this much more generous package of healthcare benefits, like you will be better off than you are with your current uncertain, stingier benefits. And that might be true, but like it also might not be true, yeah. depending on, on There's how There's a certain it's... income level where it's, it's not going to be true, right? Like Bill Gates is going to pay more, like I think Probably. in a system like this But one. I mean, a really interesting point that, that you and, and Matt Brunig talked about in your interview is actually the poor. Right. Yeah. So I talked yesterday with, or last week, I should say, the interview went up yesterday with Matt Brunig, who runs a uh, lefty think tank called the People's Policy Project. And one of the questions that I posed to him because he's thought about it is how do you pay for a Medicare for all system? And yes, he said his primary preoccupation was how do you make sure that people who are poor, people especially who are on Medicaid right now and therefore don't have to pay any money for their health insurance, don't end up paying more um, under a Medicare for all system. And so his idea, Matt, I'm curious what you think of this because I just don't have the... I just don't have the wherewithal to know what to make of it. Um, his idea was basically to take the payroll taxes that everybody pays right now. And so those are unemployment benefits, Social Security, and uh, Medicare, which are actually a, currently have a regressive structure where for the first $7,000 of earnings, your employer pays unemployment insurance um, taxes for the first $125,000 every you pay for Social Security, and then Medicare is actually sped up, uh, spread out over all of your earnings. And his idea would be to like take unemployment, take Social Security, and rather than have them apply to this initial uh, band of earnings, you'd apply them across all earnings, and that would allow you to flatten the tax rate and bring it down because you'd be taxing more earnings um, and it would be less regressive. It would just be a flat system. And his idea is that by doing that, you would suddenly have a gap where you could increase taxes for Medicare to pay for this Medicare for all system that would basically be equivalent to what employers and employees are are paying in private health insurance premiums right now. Like that's the gist. Yes. I think that that works if you ignore the fact that these Medicare for all plans envision a large increase in spending on the elderly mm. and to some extent an increase in spending. The the magnitude of the increase in spending on the non-working is smaller because there aren't as many of those people. But if you pay for this whole thing through a payroll tax, right, like a fairly large share of the adult population is not currently employed. Mm. Right. That's not because they're all unemployed. Right. Some of them are students. Some of them are uh, are elderly and retired. Some of them are, are homemakers. Right. But they're not working. Right. So if you provide a universal benefit with the payroll tax as your backbone, if you could go back in time and like not have created Social Security and Medicare, <laughs> uh, that I think works fairly well, it, you know, it, it creates a question around the margin with the unemployed, right? But you're basically like 
putting a, a huge tax increase on working people to pay extra benefits to non-working people in a way that I, I think Matt will probably not find objectionable, um, but in a way that like how the CBO is going to tell you that's going to cause people to retire earlier at the margin or drop out of the labor force at the margin, I think would give some pause to progressives about it. I think it's going to register. I, there was a related debate with the Affordable Care Act where they were saying that giving people more generous health insurance would cause a, a fairly modest number of people to accelerate retirement. And it became a big Republican talking point about killing jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about a, a much larger in scale type shift here. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how they would model it, but yeah. my guess is that that would be a concern there, right? right? And Although so I think they've revised that since they didn't really see it happening as much. So I'm curious. I mean, I'm actually yeah. curious about because I think that's a theory we had with the Affordable Care Act that like when you untether insurance and work and Medicare for all would go even further because right now you generally, you know, you could get Obamacare insurance, but usually the insurance you get at work is better. So there's still that incentive. If you'd see that untethering or or if, you know, there's something else about work, a way to fill your day, a way to make an income right. that would like keep people at their But I'm jobs. saying you, we're envisioning now a big tax increase for working, mm -hmm. right? So it's like if you got the exact same health care benefits, whether you were working or not, but in effect, you had to pay for those benefits only if you are working because you pay through the sure. payroll tax, right? But if you if you drop out, right, not to say that like, I would drop out, but a person who's 63 might drop out, right? Mm. Then you get to keep the same healthcare benefits, but now you get them for free, right? In effect, under yeah. that kind of all payroll tax structure. So I, I think that's a little bit dicey, right? Like there's a reason why European welfare states usually rely, have a heavy value added tax element to uh. it, which is just to make sure that you are taxing everybody. You know, I mean, it's not that they're all that. I think that sometimes gets, like, exaggerated. Um, but there you wind up with the opposite political problem, which is that you're raising taxes on elderly retirees mm. to provide a benefit that even though there, there like, is a big benefit to retirees here because the benefits package is actually much more generous, I'm not sure that we see evidence that elderly people – are clamoring for this. You have to have like Medicare star yeah. for all, right? Which is why, I mean, this is will get me thrown out of the progressive caucus. But like, I think ultimately Democrats are going to want to try to enact something that is much more similar to Medicare. And by than, that, you mean like a, a less robust benefit package or? Yeah. Okay. Just like, Which is more similar to like other countries too, I would say. Like, yes, I mean there is a reason why. I mean, again, when you when you listen to not what is in the plans, but to what the proponents of these plans say, what they say is that every other country has done this. Yeah. And I think that if you envision a feasible scheme, it will look more like what the other countries have in fact done, yep. and less like this thing they're saying. That right. they're going to yeah, do. Yeah, so I mean, I spent some time reporting on this, and I don't think I ever actually, because this is a question that came up on the weeds, and then Ezra said you wrote a story on that, and I, I did. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's really notable about other countries' healthcare systems, ones that we consider universal, 
all of them that I could find, they have some role for private health insurance because yeah, I think we were talking about this on the weeds a few weeks ago. There is always some kind of gap in the government coverage. That gap might be copayments or a deductible cost sharing when you go to that doctor. The gap might be certain benefits. In Canada, for example, um, the public plan doesn't cover prescription drugs. So two-thirds of Canadians buy a private plan to cover prescription drugs, dental, vision. In, you know, the gap might be the ability to see a doctor quickly. I think actually the Australian healthcare system is super interesting in that they've actually really encouraged people to buy private plans that compete with the public plans, essentially seeing the public plan as the base. And then 47 percent of Australians are buying a private plan that can get them into certain hospitals, that can get them seen quicker for elective surgeries, that can get them private rooms at the hospitals. Um and I think there's two things that are important about that, uh, about those gaps and like the private insurance that comes in to um, to fill those. One is uh, is a little obvious that he- a health insurance plan costs less when it's covering few th- fewer things when you ask people to pay for them. The second is that it also has a downward pressure on how much healthcare people use. Where if not ever, we, we know this from a classic health insurance experiment, the RAND experiment, that when there is some kind of cost sharing for healthcare, when you have to pay a little, and even if it's a little bit, it causes you to pause and think, you know, do I want to go to the doctor? And in some cases, you'll say, yes, I feel sick. I will pay my 10, however, money dollar copay and go to the doctor. In some cases, you say, you know, I'll wait a few days and like see if it goes away. That can be good for unnecessary care. It can be worrisome and bad for necessary care. You know, when I spoke with Jaya Paul about this, her view was no one should ever pause and think before going to the doctor. Like we've been pausing and thinking too long. Um, most people who have constructed international healthcare systems disagree with that philosophy. And I would say Sanders shares that philosophy too. Sanders very philosophically like does not want anyone to pay anything, whether it's me or Bill Gates or, you know, someone who's unemployed when they go to the doctor. But most European countries have really come to the opposite Conclusion, And I think that is something like important. We say everyone else has done this. Nobody has built a healthcare system like the ones that Jayapal and Sanders are proposing right now. And also in I mean, in Canada, nobody pauses to get primary care because they're concerned about the copay. But so instead they have more administrative rationing of access to the procedures. And this is because like in some ways the like getting into the pay for stuff, like the accounting exercise can be misleading. It's like there's a finite quantity of medical professionals. And like in America, we ration with a really heavy tilt to your income, right? And like if you're prosperous, like you can get like anything on demand anytime. And if you're poor, like you're world of trouble, right? And then you can have on the other side, like the UK, right? It's like a pure administrative rationing system. And like your access to care is determined by uh, NICE and, you know, like a a bureaucratic rationalist system. Canada is a little bit different from that, more flexibility, but still fundamentally determined by the global budgets and the the administrators. Nordic systems usually make healthcare cheap but not free mm. to try to ensure that there's like some space to like go get in to see the doctor by paying your $20. And there's no like magic whereby you can just like eliminate the quantitative limits on the existence of healthcare facilities. Like you can do things to like you can build more hospitals. It's not it's not impossible. Yeah. But it's also not like 
I mean, it doesn't just happen. Like, yeah. do- doctors don't just materialize out of the ether. It takes many years to train them. Well, that was, I thought, the most interesting point that Matt made in our interview was that the thing he worried most about was the capacity of the healthcare system to be able to provide healthcare for everybody if we're providing health insurance to everybody. And he acknowledged that the plans that we have right now, the Jayapal bill and the Sanders bill, don't really do a lot to address the supply issue. Like he floated out there, we could make it easier to, for people to become doctors or we could make it easier from doctors from abroad to come to the United States. But I think he was very uh, self-aware that this is a part of the plan that um, Medicare for All supporters haven't really necessarily thought through yet. The other piece of this I guess I'm curious about is on this issue of like price sensitivity and and whether we want to, we do want to have some cost to the consumer as a way of kind of modulating uh, their utilization of healthcare is like, I guess I, I asked Matt about this and his he kind of dismissed the budgetary side of this, which I thought right. was interesting. Um, but he did talk a little bit about some of the behavioral um, research that we've seen. And I guess I wonder, I'm curious what you guys think, because you have a little longer history than this. Like, I do think there is a lot of evidence at this point that people are not really reasonable consumers of healthcare. Like they don't exercise like reasonable discretion about what kind of healthcare that they get. There was a really good study, um, and I'm forgetting the source of it, so you're going to have to forgive me, that suggested that like women who have breast cancer delayed getting treatment because as a lar- in large part because of the out-of-pocket obligations that they had under their healthcare system. And there was yeah. just a new report um, in Health Affairs that basically showed that like nobody, like nobody talks to their doctor about like trying to find the cheapest uh, healthcare options or they don't like shop around to oh, try I to do. find their <laughs> the cheapest healthcare procedure. <laughs> you are the exception maybe. Who, but that they proves never the have rule. an answer. So it's right. all like moved. So I guess I wonder like in terms of like, you know, what an eventual plan like, might look like, like is the idea that we just need to bring the cost down because then you have to tax people less and and like that makes it a little bit easier to finance? Well, or is I, the idea that yeah. like we, we do want people to be a little bit sensitive to the cost because that helps regulate some of these utilization issues? So I think we – I mean we definitely need to bring the prices down at some level, right? Like I don't – I don't think we could get to like Canada level prices without causing like massive disruptions and like hospital clo- closures. But, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, I've written about like $25,000 MRIs and like $600 band-aids and like you need some kind of price regulation to make any of this workable at some level. But I think, you know, this idea the idea of cost sharing and like how it changes your behavior in healthcare That's a really tricky one because I think everything I've seen from the healthcare research suggests that people do respond to price signals, that, you know, people will go to the doctor less, that there is a copay. But the thing we're really bad at is, like, determining determining when to cut out care, that, like, we are very bad at patients at figuring out this is a necessary visit where I should pay my copay and this is an unnecessary visit where I shouldn't. Um, And so I think there are like all these statistics about how much of American medicine is spent on like wasteful care. And if we could just cut out the wasteful care, the hard part is determining what is wasteful and what isn't. Like a really barbaric version of this that I've written about is um, the health insurance plan Anthem was creating a new policy where emergency room weren't, visits weren't covered if it turns out they were not an emergency. Yeah. But like the whole point of going to the emergency room is to like find out if the thing is an emergency. And I, I think. That is one of the trade-offs you make in building a healthcare system. Like, if you are going to create some level of cost sharing, you have to be okay with both necessary and unnecessary care, you know, both getting cut a little bit. I think, actually, there's some, like, health tech things that make this a little better. Like, I'm pretty bullish on 
telemedicine and like nursing hotlines as like low cost ways to help patients navigate like that necessary versus unnecessary divide. But it's it's a tough area that has that has trade-offs. And, you know, I don't think there's any way around like to do it perfectly. So I guess I I sort of look at this through like the other like end of the telescope, right? Which is like you see like what's what's the problem with healthcare in America, right? And so like one problem right now is it's very inequitable. Another problem is that it's very costly, right? Like the aggregate spending is really high. And then the treatments are distributed very unequally. So to me, any steps you can take to equalize are good, and any steps you can take to compress are good. Um, and on paper, that's what these Medicare for All plans aim to, right? Like they claim they're going to cut national health expenditures by tackling the price issue, and they are also going to equalize by treating people equally, um, which I think is great. Then they also tend to claim that what they're going to do is eliminate all of the hassle from the system. And that, I think, is a little bit unrealistic. If you try to compress national health expenditures and equalize access, you are not going to be able to increase the aggregate amount of access that people have as a whole. Right. You can increase the amount of access that the poor and the chronically ill have because they're the ones who are like really screwed by the current American system. But you're probably going to end up making it harder for, say, me. Right. Like I'm in good health and reasonably affluent and have like a good job and like I pay extra to one medical. And so it's like really, really easy for me to go see a doctor on the rare occasion that I want to. It's really challenging to make a system that, like, will solve the two big problems while also holding me harmless mm -hmm. or even making it easier by sort of eliminating my, my co-payments. So then, you know, the question of how do you want to ration access, right? Like, and again, because people sometimes mishear me, right? But, like, assuming we address chronic illnesses, right? So, like, your insulin is going to be free if you're diabetic, mm -hmm. right? Because there's no reason to try to dissuade diabetics from taking insulin. And your health care is going to be free if you're poor, right? Because again, if you genuinely don't have money, like the government has to fill in, right? But then, so then, okay, you're like a middle-class person with no chronic ailment, but you decide for some reason you need to see the doctor. It's got to either be that we are drastically increasing national health expenditures, mm -hmm. right? So there's just like doctors fucking everywhere. <laughs> or else that it's hard for me to get in to see the doctor because the slots are taken by people with serious medical conditions and my nonsense like has to wait for a week. Or it has to be that like there is a copayment mm. for middle class people's random non-chronic stuff to make sure that like they're free appointments, right? It's like if the restaurant- Or a private insurance plan that right. gets you that Yeah, or, or a private outside. Because like yeah. if the restaurant was free, like that would be great. Nobody would need to starve, but also you couldn't get a table, mm. right? So it's like you have to do something uh, unless what you're proposing because is a huge increase yeah. in the amount of healthcare spending, which I don't think is merited. Like when I look at studies of why is U.S. life expectancy lower than Canada's- mm. I have not seen anybody credibly claim that treatment of diagnosed illness in the United States is like inadequate 
in the aggregate and contributing to poor health, right? So it's like, because it gets confusing because like America has a very serious like public health problem relative to a lot of these other countries and also our healthcare system is screwy, Mm -hmm. but they seem to be like largely separate issues. Yeah, right. I mean, most of the like the you know the opioid crisis, uh, rising suicide rates, like that's the stuff that's to blame. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have, we have more murders, yeah. we have higher obesity, right? So right. it's like, but it's so not it's, that people aren't getting healthcare, right? So it's like I would want to put money into like like extra money as opposed to just like reworking our spending. I would want to like put into like our p- critical social problems in yeah. the United States, like just poverty, yeah, as opposed to like cancer treatments for the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, which is obviously both important, right? But it's like it's like the living conditions in poverty are very bad and have very bad health impacts like before you develop chronic illnesses. And yeah. like we need to support people like throughout their lives. Yeah. Should we talk about some some Nordic countries now? Absolutely. Let's, <laughs> Let's talk about some problems not in healthcare. <laughs> support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So governments all around the world know how much money people make because they file taxes. Uh, And in the Nordic countries, they make this information available to people in some different kinds of ways. Um, And Norway had an experiment early in the 21st century where they made access to this information really easy. It wasn't like you had to go down to a records hall and like fish out some piece of paper. You could just go on the internet and look up anybody's tax information, basically. Um, and 
I don't know. This was fascinating. People like to talk about it. It always seemed like a good idea to me. Uh, there was eventually a political backlash in Norway to this uh, in 2013, and they they sort of restricted access. Um, but this is a paper from uh, Ricardo Perez Trulia, and it's looking at what what happened as a result of this to people's sense of well being, and he sort of shows uh, pretty convincingly that it made people a lot less uh, a lot less happy um, because their misperceptions about how well they were doing in the Norwegian income hierarchy were debunked um, and it and it wound up making them mad uh, or sad. It made the lower income people less happy, right? Were, or were the rich people? I thought the richer people were happier. Yeah, I thought the richer yeah. people yeah. were happier. The lower income. Basically, it seemed like people were perceiving themselves as more equal than they, they were. really were. And then, you know, people who were low income realized they were low income and like got sad about that. People who were higher income Realized they were higher income, got a bit of a boost around that, so, and everyone like polarized a little bit. And so, so he seems to see this as a critique of the program, mm. and it reminds me of like philosophy class, thought experiments, or like Brave New World, right? That like what was happening here is that Norwegians discovered that they were living in a less egalitarian society than they thought that they were. <laughs> And this had psychological impacts. And an interesting question is if they had stuck with it, like would it have had political impacts? Ooh, yeah. But instead, Norway opted to like put people back into the experience box <laughs> where they could where they could <laughs> pretend they were better off. And this like the, the ignorance is bliss yeah. is like I guess one view of it mm-hmm. that like – the we know that income in the United States and wealth in particular are distributed less equally than people think. So if we had this kind of tax transparency that they had in Norway, it would presumably um, negatively impact people's well-being yeah. <laughs> by telling them the truth. I am very uncomfortable with the idea that public policy that reveals true information to people is bad mm. because it reveals true information to people, right? About the, I mean, I understand like a standard critique of this is like privacy, right? But like his critique is actually not about privacy. It's yeah. that providing people with accurate information about where they stand in the relative hierarchy is bad because it reduces the welfare of the poor. Mm. And I agree. I mean, we should care about the impact of policy on the poor, but like, to say we should lie to them and tell them that they're that the rest of the country is poorer than it really is, so that they can be confused. That that doesn't. I, I don't buy. It's such an interesting. It's not a contradiction exactly, but I was just struck in the in the paper, like as it was setting up its findings, like how popular this was. Like the fact that on the busiest day of the year, it got more. This website got more hits than YouTube, and yeah. that like it became a whole phenomenon that they called tax porn. I just thought was amazing, and like they he talks a little bit about how people. It seemed like people spent the most time like looking at like what their friends and their families' incomes were. Like you could see how it could very quickly become a sort of toxic experiment if you're. Constantly like holding yourself up against like your, you know, your best friend from high school or something. Like imagine what high school reunions would be like if you were able <laughs> to look terrific. up the incomes of all the people that you used to go to school with. So anyway, I just I, I can yeah. see where like I, I guess I'm what I'm saying is I'm not surprised like th- about the effect that it ended up having on people. It's but, interesting, though, to see the outcome because another like in another world you could see in this Nordic society is people get angry about the lack of equality and then like more policies are made to try and like close that gap in some way. Like that is the other. And instead you have the policy outcome of just taking this information down. I guess so I'm a little I'm a little less (laughs) 
<laughs> troubled by living in like my experience box w- without <laughs> knowing this information because I don't like it is really hard to be poor and it is hard to like to like layer this on top of like something else you have to feel shitty about like just feels bad and like if there's not that desire to like fix the problem I don't know like it, it is hard for me to like I, I I'm generally for information transparency I spend a lot of time like trying to make healthcare data public but it's it is hard for me to get behind like making data public that like generally just like is almost like regressive in the way it's making data public. Like it's making things worse and harder for low-income people. Like that, I don't know. I feel, I just feel bad about that. Well, but I mean, so this comes up all the time, right? You hear in in the U.S. context, people usually don't talk about, well, we should have a national database of this. But they say that like, um, I, I hear I hear feminists say all the time that like, you know, people should talk more about what they're paid so that we can understand, you know, gendered pay gaps and and things like that, that people can can know what they're worth. Um, And, you know, I think there's there's always a question about, well, would that kind of transparency, like what would the short-term impact of it be, right? It's like if you just heard that like you are getting paid way less than a man who you feel is doing equivalent work to you. Like, I don't know, Sarah. <laughs> I feel I think that would probably make you feel bad. I'd probably be pretty angry. Yes. <laughs> You'd be upset if we did a measure of your subjective well-being. Um, so I guess you could say the real feminist position is we should hide from women the extent of discrimination because the impact of transparency is particularly deleterious to women. But I don't think that's what anyone that thinks. That is not. Because that's, that's a crazy. I mean, I guess the question is, like, what is the upshot of it? Like, in the case of, like, we're talking about the upshot right. was, like, fuck it. This is bad. Like, let's just hide everything again. And, like, if the transparency is in service of, like, getting to a better place. Like, I guess I don't understand, like, what was the motivation of, like, these Nordic lawmakers in the first place? Was it just like, like, let's liberalize some data? Or is it because like when you look at the wage gap example, the idea is like, let's liberalize data to achieve a certain policy goal. But right. I don't really understand like what they were trying to do with their national tax database in this case. Right. Well, so I mean, one thing that I could imagine in the US coming from this right now, obviously, lots of people are just going to look up but like their friends and family are doing out mm-hmm. of sort of tax porn like curiosity, <laughs> right? But another thing is that like you wouldn't have these like questions outstanding about Donald Trump, right? Mm. Not in Donald Trump's capacity as president, but in Donald Trump's capacity as a taxpayer, right? That like tax enforcement is not perfect. And like Republicans, as we've discussed previously on the show, have like cut IRS enforcement budgets and blah, 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 blah. Um, in a transparent system, a famous rich celebrity, like, uh, would have people would look at their tax returns, right? Like, not like you and me, but like mm. legal experts. And they'd mm. be like, whoa, this guy is breaking the law. Or, whoa, you won't believe what it's legal to do here mm-hmm. with your taxes, right? And like, that could conceivably be just a deterrent to aggressive. Yeah. Tax reduction strategies, right? Because like anything you do, it's not just you'd be running the risk of an IRS audit, at which point you blame your accountant and get off scot-free, but like actually you could be caught, right? And also it could create political pressure for change. I mean, I think what you see in Norway is that like, you know, information is not like a a self-actualizing solution. Like Norwegian politics did not have the collective will to produce the greater level of equality that people seem to desire. But like, 
I, I'm just very uncomfortable with the idea that like what we need to do is is hide from people the inequities in the system because if they're exposed, they'll be upset. Well, you kind of answered my a question I was going to ask, which is like, what is the value of having identifiable data as opposed to depersonalized data? Yeah, that would still, you know, like why 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 do we want people to be able to look up Donald Trump's tax returns instead of like individual ones? So I mean, another thing I wonder about this is like, what if to look up somebody's tax return, you had to pay five dollars mm. or like. They had to know you were looking at their tax. (laughs) Right. But, you know, but something where it's like. You need a copayment to tamp down on you. Well, but that's what I mean. Where it's like if you had any kind of good reason, (laughs) right, like the $5 it would cost you to be able to produce like a huge expose on a rich person's tax return is trivial in the Mm. scheme of things, right? Like if you could get your editor to improve the time it would take you. To do that story, you can also get the five bucks, right? Yeah. But as idle curiosity, just like going through all of your coworkers would become expensive. And you also, it would get you think to yourself, like, okay, is, is this a worthwhile use of my time or am I just making myself upset for no reason? Yeah. And plus, you would raise some money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess like what I come back to is like, what was the point of this? And the point doesn't seem to be clear in the fact like people got upset and they closed it. And I think. I would be into something like this as a public policy if the goal, if it was like we will make this data public and then we will try to do X versus like here's some data, like good luck with it. Sorry if it makes you upset. Like we're not really going to do anything about the thing that is making you upset. Um, That just seems like kind of a shitty situation for everyone. Maybe it could be if you want to itemize your tax deductions. You have well, to you have to go on the public database. I think like people that would, would be, have to, it's like you could do it on you could do your taxes on a postcard uh, and keep it <laughs> private, <laughs> or you could go do the long ones and everyone's going to know. We've got some tax reform ideas. It sounds like <sighs> Paul Ryan, call us, please. <laughs> Join the Weeds Facebook group. I, you've probably got a lot of, a lot of free time now. Yeah, uh, lots of, lots of stuff to discuss. Um, yeah, so so thanks, Dylan, for uh, joining us here. Um, there's going to be another Weeds episode released on Friday. Uh, Dara and. Jay Jane and I are also doing a couple of live shows this weekend in Austin, Texas. Uh, Recordings of that should be released uh, later after that. Um, And you can catch me this week. I am guest hosting Today Explained, our daily news podcast all week. So if you haven't listened to that before or if you do listen already, you'll hear me there. But um, come check it out. A bonanza of weeds content. A lot lot of weeds hosts all crisscrossing the shows in the country. The expanded universe. Okay, so, so thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thank you to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And Uh, We'll see you again soon. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the (laughs) phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.